This is Splice. Wow, how about that, huh? I like that Macon is a is a really well-developed side gig for Adam Studios. You know, like he seems to refer to it as like a side thing, as an experiment out there in the wild that is loosely defined. And that's okay, you know. That's right. I, I, I especially enjoyed the, the honesty in which he, yeah. uh, he kind of talked about it. But wait, wait, hang on. Let's, let's rewind about 40 minutes so that, that you, the listener, knows what's going on. Oh, here. yeah. Uh, nobody knows what we're talking about. Nobody knows who we're talking about. This guy we're talking about is Macon's founder, Eugene Kahn. Uh, Eugene started out in Hypebeast as a freelance writer, just as the company was getting its feet wet in lifestyle media and that whole subculture thing. Uh, and then, and what was his story, Alan? So he left uh, Hypebeast with a guy called Alex, uh, who became his co-founder uh, and started uh, Macon in 2016. And uh, we kind of came across Eugene uh, because he signed up to our newsletters in 2019. And we've been obviously kind of having this dance with him for a while and it was great to finally have a chat yeah i actually wrote to him and i was like hey uh eugene where have you come from and then you know it's like oh i was editorial director with my you know co-founder who's who's the creative director of hype beast and i was like whoa hype beast hold on a second and that was back in 2019 and we were doing it was literally just before we did splice beta yeah. our first beta in in chiang mai in thailand and i kind of I was like, damn it, I wish we could have got you in there to come to Thailand and, and, and chat, you know, because we wanted people from outside of traditional journalism and stuff. That's right. And that's, by the way, for, for those of you who, who are listening to Spice Pink for the first time, we're Helen and Rashad. I'm Alan. Oh, right. Wait a minute. You're we Alan. Said, we haven't even said hello yet. Let's say hello. Hello. And that's Rashad. And, and Splice Bing is our little podcast where we talk to fantastic people in, in the media scene, uh, people in the community that, that, that we so love and, and look up to. And, uh, and this is a really great jumping off point into the conversation with Eugene Khan. So Eugene, I have a story for you uh, to start out with. A friend of mine in San Francisco has a 16-year-old niece called Ruby. And, you know, my friend and I would hang out with Ruby, who is super hip and plays basketball and has great hair and style. But it also meant that my friend and I, who are obviously much older, were fascinated, but we are a whole generational culture apart, you know, as older people. And then you subscribed to my newsletter a couple of years ago. And I, you know, you and I were like typing, writing back and forth. And I immediately texted my friend saying, please tell Ruby, the ex-editorial director of Hypebeast, subscribes to my newsletter. And I feel like I need to impress her somehow. So thank you for that. Um, my stock in Ruby's life kind of, you know, went up a little bit uh, temporarily. But so just to jump straight in, you know, Hypebeast, I don't know, feels like it captured that generational divide it was a very specific voice for a very specific audience yeah i think looking back on that era and i you know it's it's sometimes difficult to go back in time like you know circa 2006 2007 or so and just look at how just give me one second hey rena i'm sorry i'm just recording something right now so you, you might have to be a, a little bit quieter Sorry, I just have um, someone popping in. Um, but yeah, yeah. if I look back on 
you know, 20, sorry, if I look back at 2006, 2007, I think the whole premise of digital media to where it is now, it seemed to move a lot slower relative to what it was. But I think that what was interesting about that moment in time was that because it was so subculturally driven, it definitely cut through a bit of the noise. I think right now that whole culture is a little bit different because I think the financialization of street culture, sneakers, all that other stuff has changed how people engage with it. And, you know, people of all different walks of life uh, are now part of it. I think for me, it's like looking at any sort of major city now, I think the age range of people wearing sneakers has definitely widened significantly, right? You're not at a point where you'll see, you know, 45-year-old guys wearing the same sneakers as a 22-year-old. So I think there's something really interesting in that as uh, a cultural device to link people. But I think from a media standpoint, I, I often say this jokingly, half jokingly, like I think Hypebeast was in theory a lot easier to build as a media entity back then than it than anything would be now because of the amount of things there are to do. And what I mean by that is obviously back then you had forums and you also had, you know, blogs. You didn't really have streaming. You didn't have the same level of gaming that you have now. Social media obviously was just in its infancy. So there's a lot of things that are competing for our attention. And if you were diligent enough to kind of work through it back in the day, I think you're really reaping the rewards now of building a brand that is increasingly hard to build now if you were to start from scratch. Which is which is a great kind of segue into into what you're building with with Mikan. Because in a way it is kind of like that and and on the other hand it's not. And it obviously has it takes a lot of, of lessons uh from Hype Beast and also, you know, as you said, the this this new splintering of the space. Uh, uh we have multiple platforms, multiple channels where you have to where you have to play your part, right? Yeah. I think that's the one thing that for anyone that's kind of entering the space right now, it's quite difficult because you're meant to have some sort of engagement across multiple social media platforms. Like, you know, you know, when Clubhouse was big, you know, let's say six months ago, nine months ago, like, oh, now I have to have a presence on Clubhouse. It's Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse, TikTok, etc. So I think that actually is increasingly difficult for people to be like, to do omni-channel well as a startup in the media space. So I think that's also one thing you recognize is that unlike selling a product, a physical product, the, I guess the revenue curve that you generate is going to look a little bit different, right? And I think, you know, traditionally there's been, how do I put this? I, I think that when I, when I look at the, the financial side of media, I've, I've grown a little bit, I guess, disenchanted with it all because I think coming from the world I came from that was primarily ad-driven to where it is now, uh, it's just changed significantly and it's not to say you cannot exist as like a a solo like one man sort of quote quote unquote media company but i think increasingly it's quite difficult unless you position yourself in some sort of environment that allows you uh what i call like lumpier payouts which are like more b2b things right i think that we like to talk a lot about which media companies have thrived and obviously a lot of them are like subscription based whether it's the information or the new york times but i think you have to be very clear about your value proposition because I don't think the information type approach necessarily fits within the realm of like uh, entertainment culture, like a hype beast. So you, even for us at Macon, it was always something that we were trying to come to terms with because we had this romantic notion of telling culture a certain way and hoping people would obviously pay for it. And I think that the the, the biggest learning was that coming from the world of like a hype beast or that product driven world, 
product has this incredibly powerful way of cutting through the noise. You look at it and you recognize really quickly, oh, do I like this or do I not like it? Am I interested to kind of continue pursuing this sort of rabbit hole or am I not even willing to figure it out? Because that's the one thing for us. We were, I guess, a little bit more conceptual at Macon. And in some ways, that's to our detriment. It, it works well if you can lock someone in, someone's willing to go through the rigor to like understand what you represent. But without a physical product, sometimes it actually becomes a little bit harder for you to kind of put those hooks in. So who's making for then? Um, it, it's it's cool to hear that, you know, you're you're thinking about product and uh, an audience. And uh, since since you've done making in, you know, since 20, 2016, I'd be curious to think of how you're how you're finding that audience. Yeah, so for us the audience was often about I guess I guess if I look back on on where we came from and where we wanted to go with making I actually think that there was a a a big gap and that you know after we left Hypees like Alex and I we for whatever I think it was more like a, a a moment in time where we were kind of turned off from the world of streetwear and street culture and the over con, overly consumeristic aspect of it. And I think at the time in 20, 2015, we thought that was like the top of streetwear. Obviously, we were entirely wrong and it's still going like, you know, five, six years later. But for us, we actually were really fascinated in just like the underlying aspect of of ideas and thoughts and how it would sort of shape culture. And looking deeper into those. And they didn't necessarily have to be rooted in street or it's more about like how do you formulate uh, an idea around culture and creativity and how do you trans how do you translate that into something tangible? So it was more more cerebral in that sense. And because of that, I actually found I think that was probably to our detriment because when you don't like going back to the product thing, I think when you don't have a way for people to immediately understand you within the first, call it 10 seconds, then I think you're going to face an uphill battle. So I think even then, we haven't really changed too much how we've positioned ourselves because I think it's really about asking intelligent questions and asking and asking why certain things are happening because ultimately for us, you know, in the, in the world of stories that we, we navigate, it's like people process product and we try to focus a bit more on the people in the process so people that come to Macon are, are ones that probably want to know why someone is doing something they're doing and how they're approaching it from a thought process level hmm. so it's been it's been five years now um, um, in, into into the business what so just by looking at your website trying to figure out what the business model is it seems like it's largely Patreon uh, are there other components to it yeah so there's Patreon meets what was what was recently a launched uh, e-commerce store, and then before that, this is actually kind of the interesting thing is that we had the idea to do a publisher creative agency, you know, two three years ago, and we had limited success with it. It's not that we couldn't get clients, but I think that from a positional standpoint, it was hard to sell because I don't think a lot of people go to publishers for creative agency services, even though they might have all the capabilities for it. So 2019 came around and we decided, why don't we just like remove the creative agency part of making, let it just exist as a publisher and then create Adam Studios. So within Adam Studios itself, what changed was it was just a very clear and easy way for us to sell services. So, you know, like what overnight went from like, oh, you know what, like, trying to get someone to come to us for something when they actually came to us for stories 
soon became so much easier when they found out we were doing Adam Studios because I think a lot of people uh, need some sort of like clear division of what you're going to a certain entity for. Yeah, that and makes can, a lot. Of, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Oh, and I was saying, yeah, and I can elaborate a little bit on Adam Studios. It's at, at its core, it's like a creative agency. We do branding, strategy, content creation. Um, so it's not really that different, but it, it's a lot of things that we were doing anyways with Macon, but just splintered off. Yeah, you mentioned curation as well. And, you know, listening to some of your podcasts um, earlier, creation is something you have an opinion about. Uh, most of our feeds currently are, you know, algorithmically curated for us, right? But this classic idea of being, of a human being rolling stuff out for other human beings to check out and to experience is still exciting, right? And it's, yeah. but it's hugely difficult to do. I mean, we had stuff like social bookmarking sites like found.com and cool hunting, you know. What do you, how are you doing curation now? Yeah, I think that what I love about curation is that it's such a, a manual job in the sense that you, it's like brute force. It's about how much you can take in, how much you can understand the world, and then go and identify where something's relevant to somebody. Like a good example, I was at physio yesterday and my physio and I get along quite well because we both play football, play soccer. Uh, he is pretty big into it on the basis of like the subcultural aspect. So I've been watching this mm. show called Ted Lasso that's on Apple and it's yep. pretty popular. I think it's, it actually is quite interesting regardless of whether you're a North American viewer, which I, I tend to fall within that realm because I was, I was born and raised in Canada. Um, and someone who maybe grew up from the British slash European perspective. So for me, it was like, oh, well, I think this guy will like it. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty easygoing. He like loves football. And I think there's sufficiently smart writing where I would feel comfortable recommending this to him. Right, And I, I obviously, as a quote unquote curator, I mean, the early days of Hypies, that's exactly what we did. We were just like curating. We were picking and choosing things of interest that we thought were relevant to a demographic. So I think that's a continuation of that. But for me, it's, I, I told someone this the other day, they asked me like, how do you get your information? I'm like, well, it's, in some ways it's this, this inadequacy around the world because that sort of is how we've built careers is like knowing how the world works. So curation for me has always been really interesting. And I, and I like it when I am part of what is supposed to be uh, algorithmic efficiency only to see it fall flat. Because like for me, I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos because I think it's like, the perfect amalgamation of entertainment, education, whatever it may be. And like in the last, you know, five, seven days, I've been so bored because my feed is all these things that they think I'm supposed to like, but I've moved past everything that they've, they're trying to serve me. So that's kind of the interesting aspect of curation is that in some ways the internet now has allowed you open and sort of carte blanche to go and find what you want to be into. And, you know, when, when we're sort of put down these these lanes that are supposed to uh, create engagement for us, I kind of like the fact that there's still a human element that can kind of come over top and still mm -hmm. be successful amidst algorithms. And you know what? That, that's what's nice about culture too is like no one knows where culture is going per se. I mean, you could theorize through statistics and whatnot, but there's, you know, one of the examples I always like to use is that uh, let's say for whatever reason, some guy's wearing a t-shirt from a brand. He goes and he engages in some heroic act and he's all over the, all over the newspapers globally. And suddenly that brand becomes relevant because he's wearing a t-shirt. Like 
culture can't really predict that. But then all of a sudden it becomes part of the the framework, and I think that's sort of the interesting and fun thing that I that I enjoy seeing is you know in part trends, in part rationalizing where the world's going, and trying to make sense of it all. You know, on on this topic of trends, I I'm you know I read your editor's letter from uh, from March, uh, the one that was titled "Slow Down," and in there you wrote, "When I was younger, I felt the need to create things that were never seen before, or that could earn themselves the title of being first. Uh, but I've recognized the value of being number one often brings with it some significant uh, headwinds. I, is that kind of what you're you're talking about here? Because in a way, you're you're interested in trends. You're interested of seeing in seeing what is first and what that creates as a result of that. Yeah, I think that probably was <laughs> maybe maybe a part of like identity building when I was younger. It was like, hey, something you could hang your hat on. Like, always the first to identify this, but. Maybe as I get older now, I think there's a little bit different perspective where maybe the even a more business oriented perspective comes into play where you can definitely identify a trend, but you don't have to put it on the front burner. You're kind of putting it on the back burner and waiting for it to achieve a certain level of boil before you actually start focusing on it. And I think that's something that has been really interesting because I would say making circa 2016 was probably ahead of the curve for a lot of things. Like we attempted to do a purely audio-based publication before I think podcasts really, really picked up. We tried to do like a hard-gated paywall and we had to like design our own tools for that, which were both expensive and not necessarily the most efficient. Like that was obviously predating Patreon and whatnot. Like a lot of these things now would have been easier to just implement out of the box. Um, And while it's nice to be like, I was first, I think you also recognize that this day and age, because of media fragmentation, it doesn't really matter how good your idea is. If you don't have distribution, then, you know, what good is an idea? It's just kind of stuck in its own little corner. And I've, mm. that was frustrating to me because I was like, oh man, like I, I was on this thing, you know, two years ago, but because I, maybe I personally wasn't big enough, I didn't have enough distribution, then I just kind of had to sit on the sidelines and wait. And like, you're dedicating all this time and energy into something that you yourself cannot really effectuate change. Um, so I think that's like one of the interesting things. Like, especially if you look at, if you look at it on a cultural level right now, like there are only a handful of people that occupy certain, call it cultural areas that can really move culture. I think in this day and age, I think obviously Kanye West is probably the one that has one of some of the most significant power Sorry, I, I think Kanye West is someone who has the most significant capability of, of really moving culture, right? Like people look at him like, I don't know if you guys noticed something dropped in the last 24 hours. It's basically like a small little digital device that comes with all the stems and all the uh, tracks from, from Donda, his latest album. And basically you're paying $200 for this thing and you have the ability to go and modify and play with all the tracks. And that's something that some other artists could have done that, you know, six months ago. But if he doesn't have the scale of Kanye, there's like it'll just fall flat on his face. So I think that's maybe I'm becoming a little bit more practical as I get older. So you get the uh, you're able to remix Kanye, uh, pretty yeah, as, pretty as much. a fan. And as, yeah, that's insane. I need to go check this out. You know, just just talking about the about fans. Uh, I heard you mention again in in another podcast. Um, uh, making it up, I heard you mention Lee Jin and the whole creator economy, passion economy thing, you know, 
and she did that remix of Kevin Kelly's 100 True Fans idea for Andreas and Horowitz last year, I think the beginning of last year. What's What would be your take on that or your tip for cultivating true fans? How do you work with that core fan yeah, that, believer <laughs> audience? That, that's a good question because f- for me, maybe, and you know, I, I have no problem being super transparent with uh, the way we've approached things because I think there's part of us with make within the making world we're like hey you know what let's build it and then it it can be what it wants to be and that should have been sufficient uh direction for it to kind of like move forward and i think that we definitely have a very passionate group of fans but i would say that is it like you know a hundred thousand people come to make it every day definitely not so i, I think that i even sometimes i question my own perspective on that because in some ways i Macon has shifted a little bit where it's gone from something that was meant to be its own standalone publication company to one that now currently anyways is supported by Adam Studios. So because the two are almost on different sides of the spectrum where one is free reign, which is Macon, and the other one is a little bit more transactional and revolves around uh, basically services, right? Client services. I think that they one balance they they balance each other out so in light of that the only thing i can really suggest is that i think consistency and and this uh desire to keep going and and i think consistency means both like cadence how much content you put out as well as uh consistency in ideas and messaging like that's sort of what Mm -hmm. what i think is most critical i mean for better or worse like everything now is a brand and people like to follow things that they can immediately understand and Macon, like I said, is not easy to understand, but I think at least there's a consistent throughput there of what we do. And that really is about a little bit of a deeper dive analysis of creative culture. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about consistency. This is something that comes up a lot, right? A lot of people say if you want to stand out, you gotta be consistent. You gotta look a certain way, you gotta be able to jump out on a on a on a feed. How do you think about that? How do you think about uh how Macon comes across in a feed? Yeah, I think this is something I talked to Alex about. I think previously we were probably a little bit more uh, visually compelling, like in terms of the, the visuals photography. I think now it, it's morphed a little bit into more ide- ideas and thoughts that are generated. Uh, but I think that that part in, in itself is actually a really good question because I think amidst all the stuff that's going on right now, identifying what you represent is one thing. And I think actually that part is arguably not that hard. Like, you know, even a template that carries some sort of brand elements is probably sufficient. I think the flip side is actually more difficult. And that's like finding people of relevance in a fragmented world. So I almost think like my general perspective is that uh, the amount of design that exists out there that's of what we would all deem to be mediocre, like there's tons of it, but it doesn't necessarily remove uh the efficiency of communicating a message you know this is actually something i talked about with sharice my podcast host yesterday it's like you know mcdonald's might be the world's uh most well-known restaurant but does that mean it's good food or bad food like this is a thing to to question um so i think that finding the people that will derive value from your product is probably more important than standing out in terms of pure organic um, interaction. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that answers your question because I, I, I kind of twisted it to make it kind of align with with my own thought process on it. 
No, I think it's useful. I think you know a lot of people struggle with this, right? How far can you can you take um, the way something looks and make that relevant across all different platforms? Like, you know, Macon does. I mean, you're you're obviously on uh, on on the main um, social media channels. You're also on podcasts, for example. Your articles have a way that they look and they feel, uh, and and it really depends on what the container is in all of these cases. But I guess I guess container is a good word for it. In fact, I was I was uh, I love the stuff in your store, which is a whole other you know container or surface you know for you to get your brand out. Uh, I definitely want that single use camera, and I'm I'm wondering about how you think about you know your experience from from streetwear uh, you know uh, e-commerce, uh, bringing that over from uh, hypebeast to making. What have you learned about that journey? Uh, for us, we have a, a very specific point of view on it in that a lot of streetwear retail, especially in the realm of um, just general retail, is, is primarily wholesale driven or was wholesale driven. Like That's how a lot of brands were able to derive uh, some sort of place in this world, like great curation, etc. But I think obviously with digital uh, e-commerce and whatnot, your curation became less and less relevant like you weren't going to stores to shop uh it became a race to the bottom who had the best sales you generally wait till the end of the season to buy stuff and i think that's something that is definitely not going away so for us our point of view was really about who are people that we personally can create exclusive products with you know i mean that is sort of like the the streetwear 101 of like just creating exclusivity right and then i think ultimately beyond that we were thinking what are people what are brands that we personally resonate with and we feel we can tell an interesting story? I mean, to be honest, we had, I, how do I put this? We had a lot of ideas for a store f- for a long time, but we just, you know, for, for various reasons, we just didn't get around to it till recently. But I think that of all the e-commerce slash publishers out there, I think Houdinki is probably the best example. Albeit, I'm, and I've mentioned this before, Houdinki is in a very special place because you know, for them to generate $500,000 in revenue is selling, you know, a few hundred watches. Think of how many t-shirts you have to sell to generate $500,000. So I think it's very different or even candles or cameras or whatnot. So I think that while they are seen as sort of the the darling of like how publishers, how publishers should uh, engage in e-commerce, they're definitely in the right industry to do so. So for us, I, I, I think that if you really want to build this thing out, there might be a some sort of plans. I wouldn't say that we're we're even remotely set up to go that route, but I think O32C, which is a, a fashion magazine out of Germany, out of Berlin, who basically took the publication as one section, then developed their own sort of fashion line, and that fashion line itself has probably generated a decent amount of business as like a wholesale, you know, fashion line, right? They've done collaborations with like Adidas, so that would be a good example of where you could potentially take it. I think that we we're constantly in this uh, identity crisis at making because we're always like, well, where do we want to go? Like, I think like you know what I said. I wish we had more visual stories, but then the visual stories might have to go down a certain route where it's maybe less conceptual. It's just really about some nice photos, right? And then on top of that, it's like, oh well, maybe maybe if people really resonate with our art direction and our creative direction on product, we start subtly pivoting towards that. And I I kind of feel that's in the books as well for us is that the stories we tell most most ideally would track back to some product 
and then we kind of we kind of showed a little bit of that with the dispatch tote bag we released because to us if i can't tell a story about your product should i even deserve to create it in the first place is is my philosophy around it um so i think there's a lot of things that are kind of going that it, everything's always in flux with us like we i don't think we've necessarily established what that exact sort of like point of stability is but i also think that making from the very get-go was trying to position itself as some sort of media experiment hmm. and and that experiment has gone on for for several years now you know so when, yeah. when we look at 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 this intersection of commerce and community and content uh we see that a lot of of little media companies are trying their trying to figure that out as well especially on, on the commerce side of it uh, and, you know, Richard and I talk about this all the time because we're like, hey, let's get some merch going. Let's get a store going. What advice would you give guys like us uh, who have a community, who kind of have a brand? Uh, what what do we need to think about? I think that the most important thing is really to start small and to find small moments that can help you build up to something. Like, this is what's been super interesting in the last, call it like 2016 onwards, Media has been this incredibly powerful tool in fashion because there's so much identity generation through a publication's logo. Like if you're wearing a Fox News hat and I'm wearing a New Yorker uh, tote bag or whatever, like already you've you've formed your own opinions and uh, insights into somebody. So I think that that's something that's really interesting for us to sort of like start thinking about moving forward with. But yeah, I think what's really important is like for us, when we engaged in this, we looked at opportunities where we could do relatively smaller runs of product that were still in some ways exclusive and or were a little bit more meaningful. So we do have like these these very simple making logo t-shirts, right? But then beyond that, we also wanted to think about, well, what's the splice perspective on uh, ideas and topics that are near and dear to you guys, like that are relevant to you? And how do you work with people in your community to make that uh appear a little bit more unique right and i think that there's nothing against logo shirts but i think that people in media should have sufficiently uh broad understanding of who who they are what they represent and what their community wants and that's sort of the nice sandbox you're drawing out and in that sandbox you're sort of developing uh products that that could speak to your audience but I think, yeah, it, it's really like from a financial perspective, it's probably also just taking smaller bets. I like what you said about moments, uh, that whole moment marketing, you know, again, I don't mean to commoditize it or something, but you said, you know, be clear about who you, who you are and what you stand for and what your community wants. And the one thing that, you know, as the design guy, loosely speaking, of Splice, I'm kind of trying to do T-shirts that captures somewhat this media zeitgeisty thing, but without putting our logo on it, because that's completely opposed to any principles that we stand yeah. for. But, you know? but I, I think what I also realized too is that at some point in time, like when you put out product into the world or you're you're creating this physical experience with other people, like sometimes you just have to let go of the reins and let the outside world determine how they want to interact with your brand or product. And I think that's what's really interesting is that for me personally, there are certain things I'm not into, but I recognize that this is what maybe our community is into. And, you know, the depending on how you position it, like for us, the product side was often seen as not just a revenue stream, but just also a marketing tool. And it was yep. so interesting to see people interact with a bag. Like we probably got more interaction on 
our physical product than we do on like a story, right? And I, I can understand why. Like one's like, oh, I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's a really nice candle, and it's shot well, and it has great label design. And autom- automatically, that's a lot easier for someone to understand than um, someone talking about like the the challenges this of growing as an artist. Let's say, right? Those for are two sure. different two different things that take different amounts of time, a dedication to understand. I'm excited about what what you're calling an experiment. You know, yeah. uh, making it, it. It's it sounds like a really exciting idea. You're trying to. It's it's evolving. It's evolved with the way you've thought about the world and curation and audiences uh, yeah. and media and culture since 2016. Like, yeah, like I think the next move, and we've been kind of slowly plotting away at it, is just like some sort of application, like of a NFT DAO approach. And I think that's like these two big buzzwords. But my general sentiment around where we are in that space right now, I think it's still very low hanging fruit. Like, you know, I think if you look at art and whatnot, that was to me sort of the low hanging fruit of these speculative assets that don't, doesn't mean they cannot exist, but I think the functionality aspect was definitely not considered or people recognize how difficult it was to like program. And I mean, program, I don't mean like, like from a coding perspective, but create programming for functionality. So for us, it'd be quite simple. It's like, Hey, if you are a Patreon member, you know, we'll, we'll give you a sort of an NFT that in itself probably has some visualization component, but also it's more like a pass, right? It's a pass to like our discord. Maybe it's discounts on, on our e-commerce store. It's, the ability to vote on what the next color t-shirt is. Like we kind of did small experiments like that. Like what is a design you guys want to see? Or, you know, if we're going to design a second tote bag, uh, what are updates to the first one that you want to see? And I think that is, you know, it doesn't need to go out and be the most complex thing from day one. I think just understanding what that looks like. Because for me, if in five years time, Macon was running itself and like I didn't really have to be involved in the day-to-day beyond just like keeping abreast of, where I think things could go, like subtly, right? That would be, more, I'd be more than happy for um, the keys to be relinquished. And it's a community-driven initiative. And also, how do you create reward? How do you how do you pay people for the time, effort, et cetera? I think those are like interesting concepts because at this point in time, making as like the quote-unquote experiment isn't really about me having this goal or aspiration to be like a, um, let's say a hundred million dollar media company. It's actually more about how do you create connectivity and how do you bring people together for, to arrive at consensus on a broader level to like move culture forward. Right. So I think that it's, that's, that's the thing that's kind of getting, that gets me excited. Um, But then again, there's a lot of people that are trying to overcomplicate things. And I think taking one step at a time, especially in new and likely not fully understood worlds is probably the right approach. Which brings me, yeah, to a question about success. Is that, personally, is that what success would look like for you around making? I think success for me, like, number one, let's let's achieve some sort of financial uh, stability where it's not Adam Studios that's paying the bills. It's like, you know, Adam Adam Studios pays the bills. Albeit, we, we run pretty lean deliberately. Uh, but I think, yeah, trying to create handbooks that other people can jump off of and develop and build their own entities, their own businesses, I think that'd be perfect for me. Because I don't, I don't really need to be 
the gatekeeper, but let me sort of be the experiment. Let me figure out what worked and what didn't work. You you de- derive those learnings and you go and do your own thing. Because I think also from a personal standpoint, this is just me personally, like having been in this media thing for for a while, like I wouldn't say that I have the same level of energy to create. And I think my role within this whole framework has changed a bit. Like, you know, when I was 25, like, yeah, okay, sure. You could, you'll listen to a 25 year old on what's cool, but like, dude, I'm like 38 now. Like, I, I don't think people are going to look at me and be like, yo, this is what's cool. This is what's not cool. It's more like, let me help provide some guidance for that next generation to figure out how to make things happen, how to execute. That's really what it comes down to. I think you've given us a lot to, to think about here. I think this is also very useful to uh, to our community. You know, anyone who's trying to build something today needs to struggle with all these uh, questions that, that you've kind of raised here. Yeah. Thank you so much, Eugene. This is really helpful. Thanks all for your time. Guess. Yeah, anytime. I'm you know, a big fan of the newsletter too. Uh, and I, when I when it first popped up, I was like, oh, this is really interesting because I think that my this is my outsider's take on what you guys do well. It's really about this very well-articulated and uh, deep-dive exploration into the role of obviously media in Asia, but also the graphic and visual design aspect of it. And I think that's something that in this part of the world, because graphic design, photography, the arts, et cetera, are, I guess, not as, I don't know if respect to this world, but I guess we don't put as much weight into it as, you know, the Western world. I think it's really nice for people to reframe their thinking in Asian media on what role creativity has in their job and how they can uh, maybe even be more efficient and tell better stories. Wow, I'm glad we got that on tape. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Eugene.